Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. We've been looking at Psalm 23 over three Sunday mornings, and so I want to invite you to turn to it again for the last time this morning. Psalm 23 is our reading. You'll see the version as well. We've been singing a different version of the psalm each week. You'll see the version that we're going to sing uh, this morning. The King of Love, my shepherd, is after we've listened to God's word together. So let's read this wonderful psalm one more time. Page 458 in the Church Bible, if you're using that. And it will certainly help you this morning to have that open, open in front of you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so conscious we are on such holy ground with words like this that have nourished and fed and kept your people ever since they were written. We thank you for the richness of the feast in front of us for the way in which you care for us, your people, your sheep, your children. And so we ask together, may these moments now in your hands be extraordinary moments, moments where you speak and we listen, where you call and we follow, where you change and we gladly obey. For we ask it together in Christ's precious name. Amen. I have a favorite scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Many of you, of course, know that beautiful story, C.S. Lewis's uh, fable, part of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. My favorite scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not, not well known. It is often really quickly passed over. And I I cannot prove this in any way. I haven't looked into this, but I I wonder, I just wonder if my favorite scene comes from what C.S. Lewis saw in Psalm 23. Uh, About halfway through the story, halfway mark in the story, C.S. Lewis gives us two chapters. The spell begins to break and Aslan is nearer. Those are the two chapters. You, You may know it. The white witch's power is waning. The frozen wastelands of Narnia are thawing and retreating. Winter is retreating and Christmas is returning. 
A land where it was always winter and never Christmas. Oh, what a beautiful thing is now happening. Father Christmas is back. And there are gifts and presents. And with Aslan nearer and on the, on the move, we know we are heading for a showdown with the White Witch. Do you remember this bit? As the White Witch is racing to the stone table on the way... She comes across what C.S. Lewis calls a merry party. Here's what he says. A squirrel and his wife with their children and two satyrs and a dwarf and an old dog fox all on stools around a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating but it smelled lovely and there seemed to be decorations of holly and he wasn't at all sure that he didn't see something like plum pudding. The witch cries out, What have we here? Stop! And the white witch arrives at the party. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. What is the meaning of this? Screams the white witch. Nobody answers. Speak, vermin, she cries again. What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup. What? It overflows. I want to show you three things again, like we've been doing each, each Sunday. Three things each time. Three things this morning. And they are all things here in verses 5 and 6 that the shepherd, our shepherd, the, the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus, things that he does for us. I hope you've seen over three Sundays, those of you who've been here, if you've managed to take them all, all in, I hope you can see the benefit of sometimes just just slowing down and drilling down deep into a passage. The, the, the riches are immense, aren't they, here? I just noticed for the first time on Friday, making it to the end of Psalm 23, that I make it ten footnotes in this psalm in your Bible. Ten. That is extremely unusual in one short passage. Ten places where it's as if the, the translators want to say that there is so much to see here. For here we are at the end of journeying with the shepherd. At this stage of the psalm now, the the sheep have been out there in the world, in the wild. They have followed the shepherd. And the point of it all is to have them back safely in the fold with the shepherd. Here Here is our third confession of faith. There are three confessions I've said, aren't there? All the way through this psalm. I shall not want, I shall not fear. And today the third one is a positive. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here is what the Lord Jesus will do for you. I will dwell with him in his house forever. And so here we are at the end this morning, looking back over the journey. Here's what somebody says about the whole psalm. The green pastures in verse 2 or verse 1 may be the normal place. The valley of the shadow of death is the fearful place. In front of the enemies is the dangerous place. And the house of the Lord is the abiding place. 
In other words, in every place, wherever you go in life, in every part of life's journey, in the world, in every season, the shepherd is there. Three things to show you today. Number one, look how he welcomes. Look how he welcomes. Number two, look what he sends. And number three, look where he invites. I want to leave you today simply savoring the beauty of the Lord Jesus. That's all I want to do. Number one, look how he welcomes. Look how he welcomes. That's the stress, how he does it. Look at the way he does it. I've called this sermon, you'll see it printed there on page six. I've called it the guest and the host. And the imagery by the end of the psalm has changed, hasn't it? Sheep lying down in green pastures can be led by brooks down into the valley. Sheep need a rod and a staff. But look here in verses 5 and 6. Just notice how that that shift to the second person that we saw in verse 4 last week. Remember, instead of saying he and me, remember I said it's as if David is talking about the shepherd. And what he's saying about the shepherd in verses 1 to 3 is so wonderful. But that by the time he gets to verse 4, it's as if he just turns and speaks directly to the shepherd himself. He turns to the Lord and addresses him directly. I will fear no evil for you are with me. And, and now it can't stop. It just continues, doesn't it? It just flows out of him. You prepare a table. You anoint my head. You, you, you. Friends, I, ho- I hope this morning that by this stage of the service, every Sunday, I hope that you have said the word you a lot. I've said it out loud to to lead us and I hope that as I've been saying to God, you, I hope you've been saying it as well in your head, from your heart, you, Lord, you. Not just he or him. He he or him is description language, isn't it? But but you, that, that is personal language, that is relational language. When you don't know somebody or you're out of relationship with somebody, you talk about him or about her. But when you know someone and love someone and you want to be with someone, you say, you. The the words that you use in church show your relationship to the shepherd, don't they? Are you learning about him or relating to him? Where are you with him? When you're close to him, like, like David is close to him here, there, there are all manner of shades to your relationship with him, isn't there? Not, not only sheep and shepherd, but now a guest and host. And we've moved from pastures and waters and rods and staff. We've moved now instead to oil on the head and cup in the hand. It's as if David addresses the Lord as his shepherd and he's saying to the shepherd, look, your care for me is so comprehensive, so absolute that even more than the way a shepherd treats sheep, you treat me the way a host treats a guest. Look look how he welcomes in verse 5. There are three verbs. Two of them are explicit and one of the verbs is implied. Look at the verbs. You prepare. You anoint. And my cup overflows. There's the third verb. The sense is you fill the cup, isn't it? 
You prepare, you anoint, and you fill my cup. You have done it. You've made my cup like this. Every detail in in verse 5 is lovely, isn't it? One commentator says, Here there is a well-set table, there is festive oil, and there is a brimming cup. A well-set table, festive oil, and a brimming cup. That that, that word prepare in verse 5, it It's what priests did to the sacrifice in the tabernacle in the temple. They never just threw it together, chucked stuff onto the altar. No, they they prepared the sacrifice. In other words, everything was just so. Everything was just right, just as it should be. It is not haphazard. It is prepared. Isn't that the mark of a good host? That they're prepared. You know, years ago, I was laughing to myself this week remembering this. Years ago, we, we once had somebody come to us for an evening. And we have a good, still do, we did have, we still do have a good relationship with this person. We didn't know them particularly well at the time. And it followed a, quite a tricky pastoral situation. This person wasn't from Aberdeen. They were visiting. And they came to us for the evening. And they had to say to us, eventually, through the evening, this person said to us, look, this is really awkward, but I need to say to you, we've got our wires crossed here, I thought I was coming for an evening meal. And this person said, I'm just, I'm really, really hungry. Can can you feed me? And do you know what he got? Toast. We, We had nothing. We were totally unprepared. Our, our wires were crossed. What he thought he was getting what wasn't what we thought we were giving to him. Every host knows to be a successful host, you prepare, don't you? More than preparing, look what is flowing with this host, oil and wine. See, just like today, we take somebody's coat when they arrive at the door. In this culture, you, you, you wash their feet, and you perfume their head, and, and throughout the evening you never ever left your guest with their glass in their hand, just looking at it slightly awkwardly down to the last dregs, wondering if it, is there going to be a refill at any point? No, you, 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 you just lavishly gave. Look, do you see the picture? It is a picture of the most welcoming of hosts. No trouble is too much for this toast. He's thought about it in advance. When you arrive, there is the warmest of welcomes. There is perfume on your head and you never leave hungry or thirsty. Brothers and sisters this morning, do you know how good God is to you? Do you know how good he is? His welcome of you is second to none. You cannot beat it. You just know you've been with good hosts, don't you? You never forget. It's what, it's what you talk about in the car on the way home. That was amazing. I didn't know they were going to do that. That was incredible. And some of us today think that we are irrelevant to God. We think we've, we've messed up. Maybe we've screwed up. We've dropped out. We've burnt out. And we just haven't quite seen yet that the sh- this shepherd and this host... With him and with him today, there is the kind of welcome you cannot ever imagine. Is this miserly or magnificent as you look at it? You know, what, what, t- take a step back. What is God like to you in your mind's eye? Do you think of God like the Grinch? 
Or is God like Father Christmas? It's why C.S. Lewis paints Father Christmas into the line the which it's a really odd thing to get, isn't it, in the story? All of a sudden, it doesn't quite fit. There's Father Christmas. But although Aslan in the story is the Christ figure, it's as if C.S. Lewis just can't help himself including somebody like Father Christmas because when Aslan is at work in the story overturning the curse and winter is becoming spring, well, of course it's going to become Christmas. The presents are just going to flow, aren't they? What is God like to you today? Is God a generous father? You know, you know the kind of father who, while you're asleep, just lays the stocking on your bed or wherever in your house fathers put stockings, just lays it there full while you're doing absolutely nothing. And puts the presents round the tree so that there, in the morning there is wonder and amazement, more than children can comprehend, overflowing with good things. What is the meaning of this? All this waste, this gluttony, this self-indulgence. Is that what God is like? To you, might God ever treat you that lavishly, or is God like the head teacher? In your mind, apologies to teachers and head teachers. Rule book in hand. Some of us are just miserly with our money, aren't we? We know we are deep down. We don't, we don't give properly. We don't give anything like what we could do or even should do. And the reason we don't give is because we haven't seen who God is and how God gives. That's what changes a heart. The reason we are not like him is because we haven't seen him properly. Rod and staff in his hands, yes, we get that. But perfume and wine? You know, the, the, the way that we welcome, it means, doesn't it, in life that our reputation precedes us. It's the, way that, it's the way that it works. You're either known as being tight or generous, aren't you? What did Jesus say? He realized that people were looking at him, weren't they? People were looking at him. And what were they saying about him? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you know why Jesus was like that? Because he lived and breathed the Old Testament Scriptures. Psalm 23 was engraved on his heart. He, he knew what God was like. And friends, that makes Jesus your friend today. Makes him my friend, the, the kind of friend who welcomes sinners and just look where he welcomes the stress is how he does it but I want you just to look where he welcomes you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies do you know what this means here's the thing nobody really knows what this means that's what I've learned this week a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Friends, there are as many opinions about this table in the presence of my enemies as there are commentators out there. So one person I read says, table, a table is the high plateau of the mountain range. It's literally, literally the tabletop of a mountain, like South Africa, tabletop mountain. And what's happening here is, the picture is the shepherd has led the sheep up into the open flat bit to feed them there, but to feed them in full view of all predators and threats, but the shepherd will protect them. 
Some people say, no, that the, the table is actually a raised wooden table that shepherds had to feed their sheep on because of the enemies of parasites that were going to eat the food and eat the sheep. So the shepherds literally laid a table for their sheep, a bit like a trough today, up off the ground. Other people say, no, do you remember Second Samuel chapter 17? David is on the run from his son Absalom and he is literally fed by some soldiers as he is being hunted. He is literally fed in the presence of his enemies. Friends, here's the thing. I think, isn't it a good thing we don't know exactly what that means? We don't know. We just know there are enemies out there. It's a little bit like, I think, the Apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh. You know that, you know that uh, incident? Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh that he begged God to take away and God said, no, my strength is sufficient for you. Some people say that thorn in the flesh is uh, eyesight problems that Paul had. Other people say, no, it's singleness or some other illness or something. If we knew exactly what it was that Paul had, would, wouldn't we forever, let's say it was uh, an eyesight problem, wouldn't we be forever saying, well, I've got what the Apostle Paul had. And your thorn in the flesh, it's not, it's not what I've got. It's not what Paul's got. I, I've got the real thing. No, no, the point is that, that there is sometimes some things that in this bodily life can almost break you. That, that's the point of the thorn in the foot. We don't need to know what it actually was to know that thorns hurt, flesh bleeds. Same here, friends. There are enemies in this world. Enemies in this world of Christ's flock. There are wolves out there. There are thieves out there. There are false shepherds out there. There are persecutors. There is the world itself, the flesh and the devil. And the point of it all in verse 5 is that when any of those things are against you, the Lord Jesus is for you and with you. When all others forsake you, Jesus welcomes you. You have a friend. It's the same point as before in the other sermons. You, you only have that kind of welcome from Jesus if you're spending time with Jesus. If you're coming and going, if you have easy familiarity with his presence, only if you are with, with him will you know what it means to be fed by him even when all around you is against you. Look how he welcomes. Number two, friends, look what he sends. Look what he sends. Look at the first part of verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That seems a strange thing to say. Look what he sends. For there are these two things, aren't there here? Goodness and mercy. You, you should have a little footnote in your Bible with mercy. Down to the bottom saying that that word mercy means steadfast love. God's covenant love. It, it is God's married love to his people. Isn't that an amazing thing? Goodness and God's married love to me, steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. Did, did any of you meet Ron and, Juice, Ron and Joyce Bond this week in the news? Anybody come across Ron and Joyce Bond? 
Yeah, a couple of nodding heads. Look them up, friends. Ron and Joyce Bond from Milton Keynes were in the news on Friday for being Britain's longest married couple, celebrating 81 years of married life together. You can, you can look them up and see them 102 and 100, respectively. And do you know what people said to them at their wedding day? People said to them, this won't last. Isn't that amazing? Those people aren't around for them to say, told you so. When you look at the pictures of them, you see them online on their, uh, the early stages of their romance, their wedding day, and then you see them now. Do you know what you're looking at? Steadfast love. Isn't that right? Lo- love that hasn't gone anywhere other than after the other person. Love that has stayed and stuck. It, it is the most beautiful picture. And, and after all this talk here in the psalm of, of me following the Good Shepherd, David says, I now look back over my shoulder, and as I look back, I see two things coming down the tracks towards me. There are two things following me. Goodness and steadfast love. And many preachers say it's like the shepherd has two sheepdogs. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And as the shepherd is out there in the fields and we're following, he has these two helpers, these two little shepherds running behind him, helping him do the work. But you see, the reason I've said, look what he sends, is because that Hebrew word follow in verse 6, goodness and mercy shall follow me. All the scholars tell us it is too weak a translation. The word is really pursue. Goodness and mercy will pursue me. Steadfast love will pursue you. See, those words goodness and steadfast love, they describe God himself in his attributes towards his people. It is God's goodness and God's steadfast love, which means it is God himself pursuing us. You don't get this sort of abstract thing of goodness floating around following us or steadfast love just all by itself. They are God's goodness, God's steadfast love. God is behind you all the days of your life, David says. If you like, he is hunting you down, but hunting you down only to be good to you only to be covenantally faithful to you we, we watched over the holidays with our children the film The Fugitive 1993 I'm at that stage where I'm saying to my children you've got to watch the classics and uh, it's not quite a Christmas film like Die Hard uh, but it's still a classic isn't it The Fugitive Harrison Ford Playing, playing Dr. Richard Kimball, you remember? He's a man who is wrongly accused and sentenced to imprisonment for murdering his wife. And he ends up on the run. And the whole point of the film is that Richard Kimball is hunted down by Tommy Lee Jones, the police officer, the, the ruthless, determined police officer. And there, there's a bit at the end, I won't spoil the, the, the film for you. While he's on the run, Harrison Ford's character has to also try and prove his innocence. He leaves clues for the detective to prove that he's innocent. There's, there's a bit at the end in the showdown where Tommy Lee Jones, the police officer, shouts across the room to Kimball, who's hiding, crouching, fearing for his life. He shouts across, doesn't he? I believe you. I know you didn't kill your wife. I believe you. And you see the relief wash over 
Richard Kimball's face, don't you? He, he is vindicated. He's in the clear. Why? Because it turns out that the man who has been pursuing him is good. He's good. He, he's being hunted by goodness. Our human goodness, friends, human goodness can be amazing, can't it, when we see it? Human, steadfast, 81 years of love can be amazing. Oh, friends, imagine being pursued by God himself. The Lord himself. The Lord of the burning bush. The the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus himself. Do you see how amazing it is? As the shepherd, he leads us. And as goodness and mercy, he follows us. He is ahead of us to the still waters. He is with us in the valley. He is even behind us in his goodness and love. Psalm 139, you hem me in behind and before. And look, you even pursue me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. Every single day, always. Do you know what it's like to be in a really heated argument, friends? I think, I think you only have this sort of argument with somebody very close to you. Obviously, I'm not speaking from experience. A family member or a loved one. Have you ever done this when you end up in these sort of arguments? You end up saying to them, you say, you always do such and such. You always do that. And I think we know, don't we, when you're saying that, we've lost all sense of proportion and balance it's usually a sign that you've lost the argument oh here you are again you always bring that up you're forever doing this you are always always brothers and sisters can you see what david is saying he, he, he's saying that to god but but he's saying it in reverse it, It is intense, it is personal, it is so direct in telling God, he's saying to God what you always do, but it is the reverse of a row, it is a love song. You always do this, you are always good to me. You you are always merciful to me. I've blown it, Lord, so many times and you are just always good. Always merciful. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine somebody saying to you, not you always get it wrong, imagine somebody saying to you, do you know what, you always get it right. You, you always commit no injustice. You are always merciful. You are always compassionate. You are always kind. Oh, so, so beautiful is the Lord. So perfect, so complete. I, I think verse 6 is a lesson to to us shepherds, isn't it? That, that when you have a rod in your hand or when you extend the staff and, you, and you're pulling a sheep back, a sheep who's wandered off somewhere where they shouldn't be, and as the sheep looks back over their shoulder, they need to see goodness and mercy following behind them, don't they? They, they need to see goodness and mercy in how you've led them. And look, friends, there is even more to it. Look at verse 6 again. Do you notice a little footnote right after the word surely? That word surely is a little Hebrew word, a particle. And that word surely can be, as it is here in your ESV, it can be a promise, an affirmation. This is how it will be. Goodness and mercy will follow me. Surely they will. It will happen. But listen. 
Or your footnote will tell you that little word can be a restrictive phrase. It can mean only. Only. Now read that verse again. Only goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Only. Really? Really, Lord, my life only? Have you forgotten where you've led me? What's happened? Only goodness and steadfast love following me. Friends, remember that the man who wrote these words is not naive, is he? He has looked death in the eye in the valley in verse 4. Whoever they are in verse 5, he has enemies of some kind. And yet, he says, bringing up the rear behind me is only goodness and mercy. Is it possible to believe this and to live this? Listen, listen to Dale Ralph Davis. He says this, in the summer of 1680, Alan Cameron, the Covenanter, was in prison in Edinburgh. And he did not know that his son Richard had been killed in battle at Ayers Moss. A trooper opened the door and flung down in front of him a bloodied head and two hands dismembered from the body and yelled to him, Do you know whose these are? Cameron took the gory tokens upon his knees and held them. Yes, he said, they are my sons, my dear sons. And then he went on, Good is the Lord, who could never wrong me or mine, And has made goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. It may stretch our minds, but valleys, verse 4, and enemies, verse 5, and apparently even body parts, do not negate the truth of verse 6. You know, friends, you don't have to go as far back as 1680. For that kind of faith, that kind of experience. You remember Helen Rosevere? I've, I've told you about her often, a British medical missionary in the Congo. And she lived and worked there during an uprising. Her faith in the Lord was strong. Her trust was confident. And yet Helen Rosevere was raped and assaulted and treated brutally. Commenting on what happened to her later, she said this. She said, I must asked myself a question as if it came directly from the Lord. And the question is this, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? Can we still trust him, even if he never tells us why? You know, friends, if you cannot say that this morning, if your theology doesn't allow it or, or your experience cannot handle that yet, handle this yet, you know I think that's okay. These are profoundly, profoundly deep stretching words for us to climb inside, aren't they? I want to remind you of, of the stance of the guest, the guest here. Goodness and mercy, where are they? They are pursuing him. He is moving forward and they are behind him. Sometimes, friend, like Helen Rosevere, you do not have to try and be like her today. What you have to try and do today is ask God in time to give you what he gave to her. What is she doing? She is looking back. 
And over her shoulder she sees goodness and steadfast love. Oh, it may take time. It may take years. It may take a lifetime. It may take many, many, well, I don't know, months, years of tears and turmoil and heartache. Eventually walking with this shepherd, knowing his rod and his staff, being with him in the valley, being fed by him, having all your needs met by him, eventually you look back over your shoulder and you say, only goodness and mercy followed me. I want to finish with this, number three. Time has beaten me today, we're done. Number three, look where he invites Look where the shepherd invites. He invites you to live in his home. Isn't that amazing? You you, you go somewhere sometimes, don't you, as a guest. And precisely because you're a guest, you're, you're lavishly treated. And yet the day comes when you have to leave. You get that, don't you? In a, you? You go to a luxury spa for a weekend, whatever, and it's all amazing. And they make you feel a million dollars. And of course, it slowly dawns on you through the weekend, doesn't it, that... You feel a million dollars because in this place they just want to feel your million dollars. Isn't that it? They, they just want your money. And they're treating you well because you're paying for it. And not because they love you. Well, they do care if you can pay. And you realize that where you have been in all that luxury is not home. The host is not your friend, not your shepherd. David says to us here, imagine being just pressed forward with the shepherd in front. He's in front of us and his goodness and mercy are behind us, hemming us in safely all along the paths and in the valley, all the way to the shepherd's house. And as you enter the house, you were told, you are home now. This is home. Hang your hat. This is where you live. Oh, friends, the house of the Lord. Read, read the Psalms on the beauty of the house of the Lord. What do the Psalmists say when they see it? I never, ever want to leave. I, I'd rather be a doorkeeper standing at the front in the cold and the drafts than for one day than a thousand years anywhere else. Oh, the beauty is astonishing. You will never, ever want to leave it. And you won't leave it. You will live there forever. In one sense, this psalm is the journey of a sheep, isn't it? Out of the fold, doing its rounds in the pastures, in the valleys, the feeding places, and then returning to the fold. You notice that again, the last footnote, I shall dwell. Your little footnote says, I shall return. I shall return. You haven't been there yet, and yet it's where you belong. You're going home you know, ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been exiled, haven't we, from the dwelling place of the Lord. We are east of Eden, outside the promised land. We are journeying, we are journeying, we are journeying. We're traveling back to the house of the Lord. Did you know that Solomon's temple, you entered Solomon's temple, do you know what it was built to resemble? The Garden of Eden. All around the walls were engravings of what Eden was like, fruit and bounty and harvest. Friends, this morning, the house of the Lord where God lives has in that house the most welcoming of hosts, the strongest of shepherds, 
the most faithful of friends, where God lives, is the most beautiful place in the universe. And God is taking us there. Amen.